Do you remember the, wor- the world before Google Maps? And I'm not talking about that intermediate period called MapQuest, where you went online in your home PC and printed out the map that you then used. I'm talking about like old school travel, where you were folding out the gigantic map that, map that you got with your subscription to AAA on the hood of your car. I'm talking about that kind of travel where you were calculating time and distance by referring to the legend in the bottom right-hand corner, trying to understand how many inches equaled miles and what that would mean for total time. And once you're out on the road, if you got in trouble, you had to rely on the kindness of strangers. And if you didn't have the opportunity to live in this time period in human history, you missed out. It was like being Magellan charting a course across the sea. And no, it wasn't a clipper ship. It was a station wagon. But nonetheless, you were the captain. You felt like it. This morning, we continue in our series in the book of Acts. And Acts 16 marks the beginning of a travelogue of Paul's second so-called missionary journey where he's continuing to plant churches and founding the Christian community all across the Mediterranean world. And last week we saw that Paul departed Antioch with a new companion, Silas, and their original intent was to return to the churches that were planted in this first trip uh, to visit and encourage the believers there uh, to deliver this decision that they had received in the council in Jerusalem. And we see that this happens in the first five verses of Acts chapter 16, but this trip soon becomes about so much more. Paul and Silas were led along by, the, by a voice, and it wasn't Siri, it was the Holy Spirit. And it's almost comical when you read verse 6 through 10, Luke records that they went this direction, and then the Spirit said, don't go there, go this direction, and then this direction, and if you were to look at a map... It's just a zigzag all the way from Antioch to the coastal town of Troas. And there in that coastal town, Paul has a dream in the middle of the night. A man from Macedonia across the Aegean Sea was pleading with him to come to the region of Macedonia and help. Verse 10 records that when Paul had seen the vision... It says, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news. And this is a mysterious facet of the Christian life, that in surrendering our life to Jesus, we are filled in our heart, in our soul, with the very Spirit of God. And that Spirit speaks to us. It nudges us. It leads us. And it directs us. Maybe you've never had a dream like Paul's, but maybe you've had an experience where you felt that that nudge, that nudge of God's spirit. Or perhaps you sense God speaking to you directly. Or you found yourself in a divinely orchestrated appointment. Well, just like road trips before Google Maps, Paul and Silas are led along by the voice of this Holy Spirit. And they come across many people Many conversations, the kindness of of many strangers. But here in Acts 16, we only hear about four interactions with four people. 
And so it begs the question, why did Luke think these four interactions were significant? So that's what we're going to explore this morning, is the story of these four people. And then we're going to reflect on why Luke might have chosen these four stories. So as we dive into this, let me just pray and ask for Jesus to go before us. Lord Jesus, uh, we sang earlier that you are the life of the world. And I pray now that you would just attune us to your life that is here amongst us, that is here in the world. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, the first story that we come across in the early verses of Acts chapter 16 is the story of Timothy. We all know that Timothy becomes a major player in the early church. Two letters that Paul wrote to his young protege become a part of the New Testament canon. And here we have Timothy's origin story. And we're introduced to Timothy while Paul is visiting towns where he had previously planted these churches, as I noted a moment ago. And we find out a couple of things about Timothy. First, we find out that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, who was a follower of Christ. And this indicates to us that more than likely she came to faith the first time that Paul came to town. And then she began discipling her son, Timothy, in the faith. But it's also noted that Timothy's father was a Greek, meaning he was a Gentile, meaning that he wasn't a Jew, and he wasn't a follower of Jesus, at least not yet. And big picture, we find that Timothy is well-spoken of by all the believers in the town and the surrounding areas. People are beginning to notice his character, his gifts, perhaps how God is leading his life. And the way that the description flows in these verses, it's, it's almost as if Timothy is asking those around him if God was calling him into pastoral ministry. And, and Timothy has his doubts. Timothy has his insecurities. And yet everyone around him are like, Timothy, isn't, isn't it obvious what God has done in your life? Of course, you're cut out for this. Verse 3, Luke notes something strange. He writes that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, meaning that his father wasn't a follower of Jesus. Now, this is very strange in light of what we looked at last week in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council there declared that the Holy Spirit, not circumcision, was the sign that one belonged to Christ. So we read this about Timothy being circumcised, and we say, wait a minute, we thought that circumcision was a thing of the past. Well, most scholars would say that this was done just so that Timothy uh, could be a person who could relate to the Jews that they would come across. Paul has a, has a way of saying it as becoming all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. But I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that makes sense. So here's, here's my take. Timothy's parents are an example of a common occurrence in the early church. Because the church 
valued and honored women above and beyond what was common in the Roman Empire. Many women found Christianity extremely compelling. Historian Rodney Stark shows through archaeological evidence that in the first century it was common for a woman to begin following Jesus while finding themselves in a marriage to a man who wasn't yet a believer. In fact, the evidence actually shows that many men in the first century were following Jesus because their wives first followed Jesus. And so I think this gives us a, a clear perspective on Timothy. Timothy was a living embodiment of the tension that existed between two worlds, two cultures, two races. The tension between belief and unbelief. And so therefore we can imagine that that tension had to be a source of doubt, of fear, and insecurity as he considered the call of Jesus on his life. The people all around him were affirming his gifts for ministry. While Timothy was asking, who, me? And I believe that Timothy's circumcision made the statement that he belonged. That he was a part of the people of God. That Paul and the church in Lystra loved him. And they believed in God's calling on his life. So this morning, God might be calling you to something. It might be just the beginning of that call and that something. You might be wrestling with self-doubt, maybe even shame, definitely insecurity. But part of how the salvation of Jesus comes to us is through others who ever so mysteriously are able to see things in ourself things that God sees, things that God has designed us for that we can't even see ourselves. That's Timothy. Second person is Lydia. And we find her story in verse 11 through 15. Verse 11, we find that Paul and Silas cross the Aegean Sea and they arrive in the region of Macedonia. For the first time, Luke uses the pronoun we indicating that he's now traveling with Paul and Silas. That's an interesting textual development here. We also know that Luke is along for the ride because he notes that as they arrive in Philippi, that Philippi was a leading city in the district. Well, it just so happens that Luke's hometown is Philippi, so he kind of slips in a little hometown pride right there in the narrative. We arrived at this leading city in the district it was customary, as you might know, that during all of Paul's adventures, that whenever he entered a town, he first went to the synagogue. He said many times that the gospel goes first to the Jews and then to the, then to the Gentiles. But evidently here, as we see this interaction with Lydia, there's no synagogue in Philippi. In first century Jewish culture, uh, to, to plant a synagogue or to found a synagogue uh, it required 10 Jewish men who would participate in that planting. And so evidently, faith is sparse, at least Jewish faith, here in Philippi. And so Paul and Silas, they go down to the river because they heard about a gathering of Jewish women 
who had basically turned the banks of a river into a synagogue. And there they meet Lydia. And Lydia is described as a worshiper of God or a a God-fearer. It indicates that she's on the journey. She's not there yet. She's not fully Jewish, but yet has begun leaning toward Jewish faith. She was a seeker. She was searching for the answers. She was trying to make sense of it all. And the texts indicate that it was through the teaching and the conversation with Paul and Silas that things began to click for Lydia. Why? Because the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to listen to what was said by Paul. And in that miracle of God's intervening grace, all of a sudden it all made sense. Things began to click. She began to believe. She felt that something was all of a sudden different. And she was a woman of great means, as we find here in the text through these details regarding her textile business as well as the size of her household. And it just so happens that the church in Philippi, to whom Paul would later write a letter that would become a part of the New Testament canon, that church, the church in Philippi, we're witnessing the birth of that church right here, started through the nascent faith of Lydia in her household. And so with Lydia, we find good news for those of us who are searching, for those of us who are asking questions, those of us who are wrestling with with doubt, who are trying to, to find the answers. And the beautiful mystery that we see here with Lydia is that we can't figure it out on our own. But we need only ask God to open our heart. And that is good news. The third person we come to in Acts 16 is the slave girl. We find her story in verse 16 through 24. Her true name is never given in the text And I think that was intentional on Luke's part because it shows the degree to which slavery dehumanizes a person. We've certainly seen that in our own country. This girl was filled with a spirit of divination that brought her owners a great deal of money through fortune telling. But we get the sense that deep down underneath it all is a little girl A little girl trapped inside this enslavement because she follows Paul and Silas around until the point in which they're exasperated by her. But it's almost as like she's following them around because there's there's someone inside of there begging, longing to get out of this imprisonment. And as she followed them in verse 17, it says that she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In her own slavery, she recognized, in a sense, the the lordship of Jesus in the life of Paul and Silas. But by Most High God, she, she was probably thinking Zeus, not the God of the Bible. 
And by a way of salvation, she's probably thinking health, wealth, prosperity, all the things that come along with fortune telling. And yet, in the name of Jesus, she is set free from this bondage. She's set free from this bondage, which isn't good for business. And so her owners move against Paul and Silas and have them put in prison. We notice here the owners are living in their own enslavement. They're just enslaving one person after another. But at the end, we find that not only is a slave girl set free, but Paul and Silas are set free from the prison. So with the slave girl, we find good news for those of us here this morning, facing some sort of enslaving reality. Notice that the girl was set free when Paul and Silas became like her, imprisoned themselves. This is what we find with Jesus. Jesus became like us, in prison under sin on the cross, so that we could be set free from that darkness that enslaves. Notice, too, that the slave girl didn't just wake up one day liberated. It came through struggle. It came through relationship with Paul and Silas, people who cared about her in the name of Jesus. It came through costly measures. And it's often the case that Jesus is setting us free from our own slavery in the same way, through struggle, through relationships with the people who love us and who can help us, through medication, through counseling, through accountability. Finally, the fourth person, the jailer. We find his account in verse 25 through 34. Paul and Silas are in prison and yet they're praising God. In the face of great difficulty, the presence of Christ bestows upon them an uncanny sense of peace and equanimity. And in the middle of the night, an earthquake strikes which as we know is commonplace in that part of the world. We've seen this recently in Turkey. And the prison and the shackles are destroyed as a result of the earthquake. The, the torches are extinguished. And the jailer feel, fears the worst. Everyone is going to escape at this point. And in the Roman Empire, the only honorable reaction for a jailer in the face of a full-scale prison break was to take your own life. And yet, in this moment of acute crisis, right at the point where the sword is drawn, the jailer hears a voice crying out from the darkness, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer just falls down without giving it another thought. And basically says, I don't know what just happened, but sirs, what must I do to be saved? And with the jailer, we find good news for those of us in crisis. St. John of the Cross, a 16th century Carmelite monk, he describes this whole spiritual journey of ours as one in which the natural lights, those things that we count on, to make life happen each and every day, that those natural lights must fade into the darkness. 
And then we have the opportunity to enter the void of darkness through faith. And it's through that void of darkness that we hear a voice calling out to us. And it's through entering into the darkness that is faith that the light of God finds us. So why did Luke choose these four stories? Let me give you three reasons. There's probably lots of reasons that you can come to in your own conclusions, but let me give you three reflections. One is these stories show us the manner in which the Holy Spirit will lead us in our life as we look to Christ for salvation. We entrust our life to Christ, as I said a moment ago, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within our soul. And so we should expect the Holy Spirit to do some stuff in our life. And notice that the saving power of God becomes real in each person's life, not in some random, random mystical way, but because Paul and Silas show up on the scene. And God wants to work through you in the same way in the lives of your coworkers, your friends, and your neighbors. But let me say something about the other side of the coin. There's something else. God is going to send people into your life to declare his salvation over you. On Wednesday morning, I woke up with a lot of dark thoughts, anxious about all kinds of things, wrestling with the burdens that lie ahead of me in the day ahead. Anybody ever wake up like that? Yeah, okay. And I went to a meeting and I heard a person's story at this meeting. And the person summarized their story by saying that, that every turn and corner where his life was going south, God sent someone in his life, in a sense, to save him, to encourage him, to help him along. I thought, huh, it's kind of interesting. I'm having kind of a dark morning. And uh, a few hours later, one of you texts me and says, I'm bringing coffee and treats to your office. And they brought coffee, cardamom coffee specifically, and, uh, and a raspberry scone. And we sat there and we talked. And it was such an encouraging conversation. And I won't name who that it was, but if you want to appear in the sermon, bring treats and coffee to my office. Um, after I get out of that meeting, somebody else texts me and they said, meet me at Big's Chicken on Gleason. So I go over there for lunch. And I got out of all that and I realized God was saying one thing to me. Amidst all your dark and burdened thoughts, I love you. And this morning, I just wanted to convince you of that. Through coffee, through pastries, and fried chicken. Many of us don't want help. We're self-sufficient. We think that we're the ones that God is using to help others. But each of us in our own way are Timothy, Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer. And what you will find true in the Christian life is that God will send people into your life on a weekly basis perhaps to declare his salvation over you. Second, these stories show us the immensity of the gospel. You know, when I was in college, there was a pamphlet that was going around that would explain the gospel, the four spiritual laws. 
and it explained that we were made in the image of God, but that image and all the peace of the world was shattered because of our rebellion, our mistrust of God. And that's what Jesus came to restore in the cross and the resurrection. And as we look to him in faith, we are delivered unto this new life with God, a reconciliation relationally with God himself. And I want to tell you that all of that is fundamentally true. But in a sense, that's just the baseline. Because ultimately, the, the, the question is, what does that mean? What is that going to mean tomorrow morning when you go to work, when you go to school? And I'm not sure that this message of salvation was neatly packaged in four spiritual laws in the lives of these people in Acts 16. All of these people experienced transformation because the lordship of Jesus Christ meant something to them. N.T. Wright is on to this as he speaks of salvation in the ancient world. It didn't mean going to heaven when you die. Saved means simply rescued, delivered from whatever problem, be it sickness, financial disaster, personal catastrophe, or anything else that might be threatening. And so these four stories are kind of like a personality test. If you've ever taken the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, Who do you identify with the most and why? And when you discover and answer that question of why, you will discover the power of the gospel in your own life. What Jesus really means to you. Finally, these four stories invite us to return to the living legacy of the church. You know, in these four stories, we find values of Western culture that we now take for granted. It's like we we miss the forest for the trees. But there are these gospel values that are down in the bedrock of Western civilization that we often ignore, and we find these sorts of values in Acts 16 in these four stories. In the face of racial and cultural division, Timothy experiences belonging. Where? In the church. Amidst a Greco-Roman culture that denigrated women, Lydia is taken seriously by Paul and Silas and is forever honored in the story of the church. Imprisoned by a psychological malady, the slave girl finds healing and freedom in the church. Even the oppressor, the jailer, finds forgiveness and a new life in this moment of crisis becomes a part of the church. The reason here in Western civilization that we care so deeply about racial reconciliation, the dignity of women, efforts around mental health, and the notion of hope is because the gospel lies at the very foundation of our civilization. English author Tom Holland says it like this in his book, Dominion. He says, the legacy of Christianity is a legacy of transformation, of a willingness to challenge the status quo and to seek a better way. Christians have always been driven by a sense of mission, a conviction that they are called to change the world for the better. This has led them to challenge oppressive regimes, to fight for justice and equality, and to champion the cause of the marginalized and the oppressed. The legacy of Christianity is a legacy of hope in the face of despair of redemption in the face of sin. 
It is a message that speaks to the deepest longings of the human heart, the desire for meaning, for purpose, for connection, for transcendence. It is a message that has inspired some of the greatest works of art, literature, and music in human history. The legacy of Christianity is a living legacy. And as we belong to the church, we're a part of a living legacy. So this week, may we live into this legacy as God's salvation is made real to us through the leadership of his Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever.